Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 61, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatz, Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And joining us today, we have the wonderful gentleman from Boston Real Estate Investments. <laughs> All right, so what so go why don't we do alphabetical? Go ahead. Introduce yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start. My name's Alex Shikola. Alphabetically, my first name starts, but Harrison should be first if we're going off last names. How do you pronounce your last name? Bonner or Boner? For the record, <laughs> it's Bonner. <laughs> it's like Connor, but you change the C with a B. Is that He's still in my school, Harrison? My mom used to say it on the phone in the telemarketers when they would say, is Mrs. Boner there? <laughs> He's still saved in my phone from six years ago as Harry Boner. <laughs> Harrison, do you right. carry scars around from middle school that a lot of kids, was that like a lunchroom thing? Yeah, it's the first time I've actually heard that. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd say we're pretty excited to have you guys here. We've been talking about this, uh, getting you guys on for uh, months, almost, uh, probably since we started the podcast. And, Dan didn't uh, want to do it. Dan said that you guys would be shitty guests. Yeah, we knew. We knew that. We knew once you guys went through 60 guests before us. <laughs> we ran out of people in our, in our immediate circle. Oh, I think I think now is a great time to kind of have you guys on and tell your story because your story has I feel like you've done like 10 times as much stuff. It's almost like you've lived two separate lives, maybe because you've had two separate companies to start or what, but I mean, now you guys are are getting big into rentals, you've done a lot of developments, you've done a lot of condos. So why don't, why don't you you want to just tell us all a little bit about kind of how you got started and and how you got to where we are now? That's a long, that's a big question. Yeah. Years give us the highlights. Of, give us the 10-year story in 20 seconds now. Alex is the most eloquent of the two of us, so I'll let him tell it. Oh, what a salesman. Yeah, so... You have a better beard. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> but this is a podcast, so you can't see it. That's yeah, so we got, we got into the business about... Approximately, I think we're going on. I think we just approached year five now. Maybe it's year six. I don't know. But yeah, so I actually started this company with another guy named Christian. We were part of a house painting company called Student Painters. So we trained college students how to essentially run like small franchises. And we were working 60, 78, 80 hours a week. And we were building a really substantial business for our company as general managers. But for all of that hard work, we had, were making approximately like $45,000 a year. And, you know, we had, we were overseeing approximately 300 employees and managing a team that large. So we kind of got into real estate on a pipe dream. Some friend of ours was named Kyle was uh, wholesaling down in Charleston. I think he maybe had done like one or two deals at like three to $5,000, but it sounded really sexy. So we were like, man, let's just quit our jobs and uh, let's start a wholesaling real Wait, estate company. Out. Were you previously employed? Yeah. You had someone hire? Okay. The job was college painting LLC, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, we had a boss, but we were, you know, we had, it was a fun job culturally. Harrison, I think he worked in the same company. He'll agree. It was culturally, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of freedoms. We had expense accounts. We got to hang out with young people. We got to party with young people. It was a blast. 
to, you know, to work in that circle just from a, you know, we felt like we had reached our kind of our ceiling, if you will, and we weren't making enough money. So you said, sorry, so you said you met somebody named Christian, you were working with somebody named Christian, but did you know Harrison at the time? I met Harrison a year after I met Christian. So Harrison and I were actually friends in college. So Um, how do you guys divide responsibilities amongst the two of you? Now, or do you want me to finish my story on how we got started? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> i'm sorry mark, that's a comment mark, yeah mark loves to jump around you know what i do i'll tell you i'll tell you honest to god i just don't i listen to like how i built this and i just stopped listening to how i built this after 15 episodes because it was just the same thing it was like tell me about your founding story of your company and then it like builds up to this crescendo and so i can I tell know. you that my story sucks more than most of your guests because i've listened to it no, it does. It, it really sucks. But we're built. We built back. Were you living, sorry? Were you living in Charleston at the time with the painting, or is that up here? No, I was living. I was already living in Boston at that point. I had moved from South Carolina up to Massachusetts. I started a division of that company called Student Painters. I ran that business for a year. We did one point three million dollars in sales over the summer and produced it all. And then after that production season we decided to go off on our own and start a real estate company. And that was called CC Solutions for our last names. Yeah, we basically started knocking on doors, homeowners that were in pre-foreclosure. And we had built a script and we asked them, we understand there's a pending property problem. What do you want to do about it? Do you want to keep your house? Do you want to sell your house? And then we learned about nonprofits that would help them keep their house if that was a route they wanted to go. And if they didn't want to keep their house and they just wanted to get out, then we started to learn how to essentially do short sales. So we did five or six uh, traditional short sales and deals like that. And then our sixth or seventh deal, I can't remember it was, our buyer fell through. And it was a single family. It was 2,600 square foot single family in Brockton. Um, and we had an approved purchase price for $90,000. And our buyer fell through in the last minute. And Harrison said, I got some cash. He had actually just moved up to Massachusetts about like three years or three months before and said, hey, I got some cash. I can help you guys fund this project. Make me a partner. So we started HCC LLC. And um, we did that first project. And we did a full gut renovation on a house that had caught on fire and sold it in like seven months. We did a killer return. We sold it for three hundred and fifty grand, And then we felt like on top of the world. So then we took all that confidence that we had. And then we just bought a shit ton of projects. And then we drove all that confidence down into the ground in like a fiery explosion. And we just got raked over the coals by horrible general contractors. And we took on way too large projects and we just lost a fortune. We just lost a fortune of money that we, we couldn't pay back. And, you know, we can talk about that conversation later, but then after we sold everything and we had this huge deficit to build out of, Christian and our other partner at the time basically said, yeah, this sucks. I don't want to do this business anymore. I think I'm going to quit and you know, start my own venture somewhere else. So that's what they did. And then Harrison and I were kind of left to pick up the pieces and repay all of that debt and kind of chip away at it over the next couple of years with our projects. Well, why weren't they responsible for their share? You know, it's one of those things where they sh- probably, you know, should have been responsible for their sale, but we were just young and dumb. And I don't know, Harrison, why the hell did we let him off the hook? It was just easier to move forward. Was it? 
it sucked. <laughs> we don't have to get into the legalities of it if that's. No, it was just a general no, question. The wheels are spinning right now. Harris it wasn't like, really that legal. I mean, like it wasn't done. I mean, it was, but it wasn't done. It was legal. They it wasn't done through mediation. It. Like we didn't hire, no one hired attorneys. Might not be too late. You can probably recoup their share. Go after them. We have a lot of attorneys who listen to this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, we're both originally from Jersey and you know how like the Jersey boys, like one Jersey boy, boy like paid off all the debt the other Jersey boy got into. It's like that in real estate. I'm from New Jersey. I'm not. I'm not familiar with that story. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. All right. We'll take that offline. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> well, no, he was oh, so, so now you and Harrison uh, create your new company, right? Yes. Exactly. So after they quit, we were all roommates. All three of us. We were roommates on Wollaston Beach in Quincy, and we said, "Let's rebrand. We want to do something that sounds rich." And we had. We were still hot on the heels of, uh, what's that movie, Harrison, that we love? Wolf of Wall Street. That's right. We were hot off that off the press on that movie, and we were like, Wallaston Real Estate Investments. And we just imagined it, like, chiseled into a rock. And it was like, that's sexy. So that's what we decided to rebrand our company as. And then we essentially just, um, and then we essentially just started to rebuild. At least you didn't use the word capital in your name. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I often think that companies that end in capital have no capital. <laughs> no, no offense to anyone out there, Ricky. We love you, but uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. so you started rebuilding and and you started developing again. And at what point did you start buying rentals again, or had you already started purchasing rentals at the time? Yeah. So the rentals are only about, you know, that's probably, we've only been actually working on rentals now for probably the last like 14 or 15 months. But after that, we went back to lower leverage real estate projects. Harrison, who was really on site managing a lot of our subcontractors and our vendors, he started to spend more time on site, getting really educated in terms of construction. And then he went through and he got his CSL and his is HIC. And then we basically set up an entity that got it insured so we could pull all of our own permits and kind of internalize that aspect of the business. And while that's absolutely been a, its own set of challenges, we're much better off because of it. And um, we've been able to really minimize bad instances targeted specifically by individual subcontractors. So it's given us a lot of control and Harrison spearheads that. And that's been really good for us in terms of, you know, we haven't, we haven't lost money on you know, our last like eight projects because of that. Having your own CSL is a huge benefit because then you can plug and play. And I think Harrison, we were probably studying at around the same time because I got mine in 2017. And I think you got, did you get yours in 18? I was in 18. Yeah. Buy your books and you went sell them to make it through the wrong year. (laughs) Yeah. They're all, they, I literally like made it before they changed the new version. And uh, I'm actually, I got to get my renewals. I did my CEs this year. So I'm looking forward to that one. Mark, do you have a CSL? Yes. Yeah. So and I just finished the continuing ed for the research. That's 12 hours. I'll never get back. But but it's all online now because of COVID. Because of COVID. Why don't we go back? That's interesting, though. Talk about, Harrison, what it was like studying for a CSL. Like, I feel like I kind of cheated. I went to college for this and then worked in the field for a long time. What Wait, they it? gave you a CSL because you majored in... No, I mean, I'm saying just like 
it wasn't it's stuff that I'd been studying and doing day. In oh, day. I gotcha. You know, He's are, highly educated. Right. I'm just really trying to make this about me. Um, <laughs> and how, and how, bri- how brilliant you are. I think, it's, I think it's a great question. And I have a, not an additional question, but I, I have a question to clarify my answer. Okay. But are we still in story time a little bit or no? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Kind of We're that. doing three hours tonight. My answer. Story okay. time. Okay. Just for the listeners, we don't know if it's going to be three hours. We'll see. No, <laughs> no I, I'm a man of few words. So when we rebranded our company, as Alex said, we went back to some lower leverage property, and that was where I stepped in and I, and at even more micro level, and um, you know, we finally got out of, out of all our deals with the general contractor, and we said, okay, let's buy something and we'll just manage it ourselves. We found a, a two family in Brockton, then we found another two family in Brockton, almost identical projects, bought only a couple months apart. Uh, it was a really great first launch for us back into you know, what we wanted to do, which is flipping or developing. And then we were going to use kind of those projects in Brockton to get back up to the level that we wanted to be at. But those went really well. Started managing all subs individually every day on the site, writing all of our own contracts, as Alex said, having all of that control, that process. Uh, and I knew at that point that I was going to then study for my CSL. Uh, so that's how we op- we've operated every project since then. I probably try to do too much um, and working on getting better at delegating and having the right people do the right things. But on any of our condo development specifically, I design, project manage, GC, work with every sub individually. Uh, we have about six hourly carpenters or journeyman maintenance labor guys that we piece around almost every day of the week on on different projects. And um, you know, I manage all, all materials as well. So that's really given me a ton of insight, as you guys know, and you know, you guys have done the same thing on yours, but as, as to exactly how much everything is going to cost. And you feel so much more confident when you're presenting the project at the end of the day, and you can be a lot more proud of your work uh, when you really know every piece of, of, uh, of that building. So back into Mark's question of the CSL, I was really scared of the exam at first, but... I was a pretty good crammer in college. And uh, that was what I did for the three days before the exam. I crammed with the notes, books, practice exams. And then I was always a, a pretty good test taker. So I went in there and just cruised through it. Did you take a course uh, leading up to the test? And I think we should sort of back up. So CSL stands for Construction Supervisor's License. You know, if you're an owner-occupant, you can pull uh, a permit on a single or a two-family. But once you get into a three-family or more... You need a CSL to pull the pull the permit, or actually a PE stamp. So you could have just skipped the CSL and become a licensed architect or engineer. So, <laughs> which would have required more college, which I was never great at. <laughs> yeah. well, Mark, if we're going to split hairs, there's restricted and unrestricted CSL as well. So, does anyone get a restricted CSL? I know that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why anybody would. Want Is it the same it. test? Is it the same process? It's like an, a little less. I don't know. Yeah, but, like one one section that's not in the restricted csl test yeah actually okay. and so anyway uh back to it the the format you took a course leading up to it i did i took a course it wasn't required but recommended and it came with the books so which i was going to need the books the books being oh god the codes. what you want me to name them? it's code? all about the code right oh yeah code books sorry yeah came with the code books and then i scheduled my exam i don't know a couple months later 
two, three, four months later, whenever I found the time. I was pretty nervous, like I said. So I was always scared to study. I didn't want to fail. But I just crammed and it, it was much easier than I thought. Well, it's an open book test. And I felt nervous too. I felt, well, it was like, it was kind of like the last time I had ever taken a test was in college. So this was like the first one. It's almost like if you've not been in the job market and then you go on your first interview, you're probably naturally going to be nervous. So I'm right there with you, man. And uh, mm-hmm. even though it's open book, it's more like, how well do you know how to find things? Because there's thousands of pages and they'll ask you a question and it's all timed. You have to go rush and find it. And it's like the SAT. It's all trickery with the way they ask the question sometimes. Yeah. And now that I'm actually thinking about it, because I blocked it out of my memory, I think I read one of my tests three times. Oh, <laughs> man. I was scared to take it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was actually really easy. Oh, God. Guys, my, my tea is ready. I'll be right back. That is epic. It's <laughs> a beautiful interlude. We must be 11 minutes in then. Mark's tea is ready. <laughs> you know, Harrison, I actually was going through some old Snapchat memories and um, I saw that video of you and I uh, doing f- flashcards and I was treating it like a game show and I was a handful of whiskeys in and you were not. But all I had to do was read the flashcard. <laughs> Wait, is that, I'm old, but is Snapchat still a thing? Yeah, yeah, it's still a thing. I mean, I couldn't tell you like what, like, I'm pretty sure, like, I don't know, is it like super? I don't know. It's still a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know TikTok had kind of replaced Snapchat. I think TikTok has definitely hurt Snapchat. I have seen that Snapchat, and I'm like not on there a lot, but I've seen that they've. They've tried to change their platform some and try to bring more content to it. I think it's how a lot of younger people honestly get their news. Snapchat or TikTok or both? Snapchat. They have a lot of like little news channels that are set up to give you recaps on major events. But I think it's targeted to like a much younger demographic now. Interesting. Yeah. Did Marcus light a candle? Yep. He and a candle. Christmas cookie. This guy's a stud. (laughs) Dan, that video I sent you of the twerking uh, Kermit the Frog, that was Snapchat. Wow, what did I miss? (laughs) Wait, I never got that. (laughs) I think I sent that to like you and Neil. I don't know if I got it. Check. I'll send it to you. Don't worry. I'll send it to all you guys. Step your game up and get me on your Snapchat (laughs) or whatever it is. And have Snapchat. Yeah. I'm old. I have TikTok, though. I like TikTok. I know. I saw you do some TikToks. <laughs> I did do some TikToks. TikToks take so long to produce. <laughs> it's such a pain in the ass. I don't know how much... People spend so much spend so much time doing that shit. Dude, producing media content is so much more involved and hard than it just looks. Oh my well, God. Let's segue into that. You guys yeah. have... Talk about that quick. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Wait, wait, wait. Do we want this to be a platform for Alex to promote Wally Wednesday? Hey, we 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 mentioned it. I'm good with it. I was just (laughs) yeah. Let's talk about it. You guys started a vlog. How's that been? What kind of reception have you gotten? Like, has it helped you with investors? All that good stuff. That was a reference to an earlier podcast that the three of us were on. (laughs) (laughs) This was actually birthed out of burst what a weird anyway um 
this was <laughs> this was born out of the idea of me and Harrison one night just being talking about how we wanted to get like social media famous and get our own HGTV show. And we're like, what if we just start a podcast or a set of video series? And I don't know, one of us was like Wally Wednesday and and it just stuck. So we started playing around with our iPhones and we started doing dumb little videos on Wednesdays that would kind of like recap something that we were doing. Who knew what we were doing? But we would just follow ourselves around with our own camera. And uh, we've officially done, I think today is, or this week is number 70. So we've been doing them every week now for for quite a while. But they were, after a couple of weeks of just like kind of bullshitting around, we decided we're going to turn these and actually focus these as updates towards our lenders because we always communicated pretty well with our private money lenders in terms of progress. But we figured let's make something that can maybe even be a little entertaining and also let our investors know, hey, we're still working in the industry. Your money's safe with us. From there, our production quality has gotten, I would say, quite a bit better. We've continued to do updates on properties, you know, little pieces of nuggets, like little information nuggets to teach people that watch them. And um, I'd say by far, the most uh, impressive part about vlogging and blogging and doing these Wally Wednesdays um, is it's been epic for lenders. You know, we have, we were blogging since August of 2016. Uh, and you can go on our website and you can read our original blogs from August of 2016. But, you know, whenever we, whenever an investor is like, hey, I'm interested in, you know, giving you a hundred grand, but I've never met you, especially if they're out of state or they're a referral we can just say, boom, check out some of our videos. And then A, it shows that we're credible. B, it shows that we've been doing this for a long time. So in terms of, you know, safeness, you're with a company that you can, that has a track record. And, um, you know, we're definitely not YouTube famous. We're not Instagram or Facebook or any social media brand famous, but they've been really well received and they've been, they've been really, they've been a super powerful tool for us for building brand recognition and building credibility in our circle of, of, of influence. Talk about your Halloween special on Wally Wednesday. How did that one help with your credibility? Those were dope, right? That was good. Those were <laughs> dope. Those were fun. I was, uh, I was scared. <laughs> yeah, the, the grudge one was kind of spooky. I was scared. The, the grudge I knew they were going to be good, but they were better than I thought they were going to be. Yeah. So about six months ago, my childhood best friend, Caleb, who I've known since I was 12, moved to Boston from South Carolina and he moved in with us and he was seeing some of our videos and he's really into photography. And he was like, I just need to get like a different lens and a thing here and I can replace your Wally Wednesdays and I can give you better quality. And um, that's exactly what he did. So you know, over the next couple of months, he started kind of upgrading his gear. And, and now he's filming us every week with like really high-end gear. And he's just such a perfectionist. Um, and he'll even tell you this, maybe sometimes to a fault, he's never, he needs to lighten up, but he's such a perfectionist that he works so hard to recreate the angles, the lighting, the soundtracks. And yeah, we just were kind of drinking one night and we said, would it be fun if we did some skits that were entertaining for real estate and we made them about real estate. So that's what we did. We did four little real estate skits that were based off of like famous thrillers or horror movie scenes. Hey, can we, can we pivot to gateway cities? 
to gateway cities. Yeah, Holyoke. That was a harsh transition. You could have like agreed with me and said they were good. Well, well the Halloween special was excellent. <laughs> Thanks. I, now I like, we can talk like about great. Episode four with Harrison dancing to the disco. I think that has been my ultimate favorite. We definitely need to bring some more of Harrison dancing. It's been a long time. Well, you know, the clubs aren't open. So as much as I wish they were. <laughs> I don't know how to transition that into anything. <laughs> yeah, that's probably where you'll see me dance. Maybe real estate is a gateway to letting you record your own videos there. So let's talk about gateway cities. <laughs> you guys are very active in some, some cities that may or may not be up and coming. They've all got their charm, my friend. <laughs> They've all got their charm. They've all got their upsides. They're like yeah, everything. Holyoke used to be the richest city in America. It did. And now it's one of the poorest. Now it's one really? of the poorest Michigan cities in America. Flint Michigan is really up there, too. Wow. <laughs> What's that? I there's opportunity in Flint, Michigan, too. Might be. Joke's I'm, I'm a snob. That's not a joke. I don't know. In some ways, I don't want to share everything I know because I know you got a really impressive fan base and then I might just drive a bunch of traffic out to my nice little honeypot. should we move off of gateway cities and something to harrison can (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we you know after and harrison feel free to cut me off because i feel like i'm talking way more than i should our roles are so divided a couple of these last few questions have been so specifically like like so much better for alex to answer if we were writing a company response you know like he'd write most of it how do you find Holyoke or how did you choose Holyoke as an ideal city to invest in? Because obviously, you know, you would have to on some research or have talked to some people or did you just say, oh, I want to go to Holyoke? I'll take part in this. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a drive. I mean, it's not like it's right outside Boston or anything. It's like definitely a drive, but in Boston, Unless you're putting a chunk of your own money down into a three-family, four-family, six-family, Boston real estate is really expensive. And you're putting a lot of money down to get any decent cash flow, which can be great depending on your position. But for our position at the time, we knew we wanted to get into rentals. Developing is a high cash-in, cash-out business. And we wanted a complementary real estate business to run alongside that and bring in more consistent cash flow. So we knew what we needed was cash flow. And we also knew that we wanted our first rental property to be, we like to call it within arm's reach. If something happens, we can be there within a couple hours. Um, you know, there's people buy rental property all over the country and North Carolina, Florida, um, St. Louis, you know, uh, and, and, uh, they can get, they can achieve a lot of cash flow like that because a lot of those units are, you know, they're lower, lower price per unit, which will typically yield you higher cash flow. So we were looking for that within arm's reach. And we found a lot of properties that kind of fit that mold from a price per unit perspective, rent per unit that achieved that higher cash flow, either although they may be in tougher neighborhoods, they kind of fit that mold in that Holyoke and Springfield area. So in short, we could buy a lot of units really cheap. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, we coming off of really seriously just being beaten the absolute crap up by bad general contractors and just getting our asses handed to us on 
relatively higher leverage projects, you know, million dollar loans and stuff, things go wrong on those, they, they hurt more. So coming off of that, we wanted to gain experience, get better at our jobs, but also not necessarily go right back into million dollar loans because we realized we'd still make some mistakes, especially as we built our own construction company. So we started, you know, targeting $200,000 buildings in Brockton and from there generally building back up. And now we're working in more expensive markets again, but it was no different going into commercial real estate. So we bought a training course to, you know, get educated on commercial real estate because we didn't really know how to underwrite that stuff. It seems a lot more confusing at first. By commercial, you're meaning like four units and above. You could give me a 250, exactly. Really underwriting anything, but just having the tools to quickly underwrite them and write strong offers that protect you and learning how to correctly do the due diligence on those types of projects. So yeah, anywhere from you know even a single family all the way up to 250 units or something like that, I can, I can underwrite it relatively quickly, at least initially. But to get back kind of on the initial point, we wanted lower leverage. So I just started, I went on LoopNet and I started messaging every single broker on LoopNet. And I said, I'm interested in buying this. I want XYZ. I want blah, blah, blah. I kind of gave them a set of parameters that my, my coach said was you know decent to start with. And then I just, I just kind of fell into Holyoke. I saw that you could get like 15 units and it was like $600,000. And I was like, how could anybody lose money? And that got me interested. So I went out there and we started exploring. And there's plenty of those types of projects where you can lose money. But it was so low leverage that it was attractive to not look into it. So once I started to learn how to underwrite projects of that scale, I just had to find essentially the right type of building. And our first project out there was a 13-unit building. It was a 10-unit brick building, a beautiful brick building, and a crummy kind of little three-family next to it. And we were able to pick up those 13 units for 360000 bucks. And then they needed you know, significant amount of work, but nothing too crazy that we knew we couldn't handle. So we were off to the races. And one of the things that really attracts us out to Western Mass is Section 8 rents are still really strong out there. That's one of the only places, Western Mass, past Worcester, it's one of the only places you can get a unit for under $15,000 and you can charge you know, $1,150 for a two-bedroom and $1,350 for a three-bedroom and have your tenants pay all of their own utilities. So yeah, it's a little bit of a hike. Yes, you're going to potentially work in some rougher neighborhoods but build a team that can work in a rougher neighborhood. It is what it is. They're used to it. And then they can potentially be really strong cash cow monsters for you if you can get them stabilized and, and get, them, get them up to market rents. But that's one of the only places in Massachusetts where you can achieve those types of spreads. And once they're stabilized, they're really strong. They also give you the opportunity to essentially refinance them in a year because commercial real estate is appraised on... Typically, it's appraised on how well it performs financially. So once you increase the financial performance of the building, you can achieve a higher loan. You can refinance all of your short-term lenders and your private lenders out of the project. And essentially, you can keep these apartment buildings for free and lower leverage entry price point. It's a great way to cut your teeth in that type of industry. 
So can we break down the numbers on that 13 unit building? Is that fully stabilized and leased up at this point? You mentioned that like you learned in a short order how to underwrite a commercial deal. So talk about the numbers and just like some highlights about what you might've learned in that course and how uh, you, you employed it here. Sure. Absolutely. And on your podcast, I think I'll, uh, I'll send you guys a link because there's one tool that I got out of this coaching program that was just really, really awesome. And it's a, it's this commercial cash flow deal analyzer that was created by, you know, a set of accountants and it's sexy. It's awesome. It's quick. It's super detailed, but yeah, probably the most important part I learned Mark is how to analyze and understand cap rates in neighborhoods because valuations are typically, you guys are chatting in this. You guys are laughing while I'm trying to sound serious. <laughs> you realize that Dan and Ray have a uh, a, a spreadsheet called uh, realestateanalyzers.com and it's fantastic as well. I do, I do. Actually, actually, Caleb has a copy of it because he did a bunch of sexy videos for you guys. <laughs> well, not the rental side yet. We're That's getting finished up now. So oh, okay. we're not directly um, yet. Okay. Um, well, well, either way, great. I'll be excited to try yours out and see how it compares. It's but, impressive that you can keep your train of thought while we continually rudely interrupt you. I, mostly me. It's challenging. I won't yeah. lie. I'm really I, trying I, to I, knock I, you I, off. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see uh, something yeah. funny? Watch what happens when we uh, stop the video on our on our Zoom account here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to kind of just quickly discuss, you know the. Uh, the finances and what I learned from a, from a valuation perspective, especially in the back end, cap rate was probably the most impressive tool that I learned, especially from a refinance perspective. Typically, neighborhoods and areas they trade uh, at certain ranges of cap rates. Out there in Western Massachusetts, you can see bank valuations at eight caps, and you can see a lot of clean buildings selling between eight to 10 caps. And ex quickly explain what a cap rate is, is it's essentially the net operating income divided by the purchase price if you spent, if you bought the building entirely with cash. So no, no with bank loans. What so is net, net operating income? What's that? Uh, what is net operating income? Uh, so net operating income is essentially all of the cash generated minus your vacancy minus all of your operating expenses for the building or the business, um, but that does not include debt service. So your loan, your mortgage payments, those are very subjective. So that's your NOI divided by your purchase price. So, you know, $100,000 in NOI or $10,000 in NOI, $100,000 purchase price, 10 cap. So a lot of banks out there are underwriting these types of projects at eight caps, but you might be able to buy a dumpy old project for essentially next to nothing out there. And once you stabilize it and you get that eight cap valuation, you can recoup all of your capital. And to further explain, just kind of give you some real life numbers out in Holyoke, buying 13 units for 360,000 bucks, what's that come to? That's like 27, $28,000 a unit or so. And then I've got eight of those are two bedrooms at eleven fifty a pop. So what's that? You know, it's nine thousand two hundred a month from the two bedrooms, and then I've got five three bedrooms 
that's 6,700 plus the 92. You know, it's just under $16,000 a month in generated cash flow once the building is stabilized over the course of 12 months. You're looking at approximately $190,000 in generated. Well, but besides that, but you have to add your capex into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, absolutely. Debt service. Buildings that need work, right? Yep. These are all buildings. These are all buildings that need work. Absolutely. So, so Harrison for a second, what does it take to, it's like putting a bandaid on a volcano, right? Some of these buildings, you come in and you touch one thing and all of a sudden you're gutting it. What's that been like? It's challenging. It's much different than looking on our rental projects compared to our condo projects are just so completely different. And it's, it's sometimes really challenging to balance my mind between the two when I'm, when I'm working on our, on our rental projects. Alex has actually done a great job of handling all of our, all of our project management there. But I did it, I did it for a bit and, and uh, he decided to take over and take over everything in Western Mass so I could focus on all of our condo stuff here. But those old buildings, you just never know we were going to come across. But luckily, they're not going to fall down anytime soon. <laughs> they're, made like, they're made like statues. So the plumbing was, was probably the biggest issue that we had to work through. We individually went unit by unit and replaced pretty much everything within the plumbing system um, by going unit unit by unit as they turned over. So that was a real challenge for sure. Um, luckily, we have a, a great plumber actually that in Boston that travels out and, and does work for us out there. So what was your overall budget over there? Our budget, I was probably going to finish around 300,000. Yeah, 300, probably. 300 to 325. So it's yeah. about like 25 grand-ish, 27,000 bucks or so a unit. So nothing crazy. And that lets you, you know, essentially update electrical. You know, some might need more than others. So it's kind of piece by piece, but update electrical, redo the plumbing. A lot of those buildings out there have gas on gas stoves. So the stoves create the heat as well. So you upgrade those, you put in forced hot air furnaces in each of the units, refinish the floors, paint cabinets as you need them. What about fire protection? Do Uh, Do this trigger sprinkler? The buildings that we've bought have been mostly occupied. So we've kind of went through unit by unit as they turned over. So we, we didn't trigger that. But yeah, absolutely. Are, are, you gutting, are you gutting the units though? Or are you just doing cosmetic stuff? We're not gutting the units, no. Out there at that price point, you know, if you need to run, like some of these units have gotten all new, like, you know, electrical throughout and you just run the conduit on the outside. We're, no, we're not trying to open up any walls. Uh, we're using lower priced finishes, lower priced flooring. A lot of these, we get to honestly get to refinish a lot of these old, beautiful, original hardwoods. So they come out really nice and charming. But yeah, exposed ductwork on the furnaces. They all kind of have a little bit of like an industrial feel, but it's completely fine for the neighbor. The neighborhood, the market accepts it. There's a lot of crappy landlords and a lot of crappy apartments out there. So you provide someone with an apartment that's clean and works and functions and it doesn't leak. And that unfortunately is a really strong win for a lot of people out there. Do you get a lot of tenants that, I mean, cause obviously, you know, you say tenants turn over. So are you like telling them when they leave, Oh, you could come back when uh, the work is done. Like are any of them leaving because they know work is going on and they just can't stand the noise or is that just kind of basic attrition? Like they're moving out of the area or going somewhere else? A lot of them I'll actually move between units. So, you know, if we get it and one or two, they just happen to move out or something, 
it just happens. Oh, you buy one and there's a couple that are vacant and you, you fix that one up and you move a tenant into that unit. And then you just kind of go piece by piece by piece. And it's, sometimes it can be really frustrating because you have to work. You, it, it'd be easier to do everything all at once if everything was vacant. Uh, it's just not the case. This is all Section 8 housing? No, not necessarily. I just underwrote them for Section 8. So some of them, I've got a handful of people that have regular jobs. You know, most of them are like service industry types out there. A lot of service industry, handful of tradesmen. But then, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them that are on some form of, are, are on some form of assistance. So where are you at in terms of like, how many units will you have? Because it seems like you guys have been putting a lot under contract in the past year. I know you said you're only about 14, 15 months. So in another year from now, like how many units do you think you'll have that are in operation? So right now we own 65 apartments that are, and most of them are rented, 65. Harrison is getting ready to submit permits on our 15-unit apartment build that we'll be doing in Brockton. We're really excited for that one. So with that one, if everything in construction under management is 80 units that are designed designated as rentals. Do you think this is going to yield your focus or pivot to, not pivot, but your addition of rentals to your strategy? Will that take away the projects that you're doing? Are you still doing projects actively as well? I think our projects, to be honest, are just going to become a little bit larger and a little bit higher end. Harrison, I hope I can speak for you. We both really enjoy the idea of long-term rentals, you know, consistent, strong cash flow that would give us the opportunity to work on a handful of development projects that we find really attractive, let you pick and choose the projects you really want to do. But Harrison is still, you know, full steam ahead. We've got 22 units in different stages, but those are condo development projects that Harrison's leading. Sounds like you guys came back with a roar from uh, your prior CC Solutions days. Well, I mean, we were we were loud and proud when we were CC Solutions. Yeah. We just sucked at our job. <laughs> we've been pretty bullish since day one. I mean, we've <clears throat> kind of just been like these, like you know, not as much anymore, but like kind of like young dumb kids on the block that like quit their jobs and like Alex and another partner bought a house like the same week and moved up with like. I moved up after not working for six months and traveling like and living in a van for three months. And like, we just like, you know, balls to the wall from the beginning and like went up, crashed hard, came back, like still not scared, still buying things left and right. And then just pushing ourselves to figure it out. And we've done a pretty good job of figuring it out along the way with respect to where we started and where we are. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, and we tried to learn to grow as we grow older and get smarter, get wiser. But that's just continually to push us to, you know, to where we know we want to be. Right. It's be heartbreaking, right? I mean, you work so hard on any renovation project, new construction, you put everything into it, and to come out of it for charity or worse, what's that like? There was, I'll never forget the day that we sold a house and I had to wire out $75,000 for the closing we were selling. And it was so awful. Yeah, that was just, uh, yeah, that was that for Leverett? Beautiful. Yeah, house. we lost. Yeah, we oh, lost. Brooklyn? Yeah. yeah, we lost. Yeah, we it was lost nice, that was a nice build right next to it. 
we lost $200,000 on that project. So why don't we, this is a good opportunity. Why don't we talk about, cause you, you, you know, you mentioned you had investors like, but you, you guys are, you know, tenacious. You didn't give up. So how did you approach your investors and how did you tell them, listen, we're not, you know, we're going to get that back. How did that all go? And then are you guys clean slate now, or is there anything left? Yeah. So yeah, those were definitely conversations to make your like stomach curl. You know, we knew that we were going to be losing a substantial amount of money. We were able to see it kind of projected out, you know, over a handful of months. So in honesty is, you know, honesty is the best policy. And it's one of our, it's one of our core values. And I approached our lenders, a handful of lenders. And I basically said, like, we're not gonna be able to pay you back just straight up. We're going to lose money on this deal. Uh, We've been beat up X, Y, and Z. I can assure you that we're not going to quit. We're going to make right on our promise to you to pay you at the interest rate we promised you, but it's not going to be on this project. And Mm. this is what we've learned from our experience. This is what we're going to apply to the next project. And this is how we think we're going to be better. And I, I had that conversation like five times and every single one of my lenders were like, you know what? Thank you so much for coming to me and being honest. Uh, it took a lot of guts and we appreciate, we, you have no idea how much we appreciate the fact that you're not just filing bankruptcy and quitting and going to go start another LLC or just, you know, wipe your hands of this, uh, that a handful of them actually invested more money into our next projects because they truly believed in us. And all of our lenders have, Uh, all of those lenders have just had wonderful rapport with them and we've built lots of trust. They love our communication. You know, they still brag about us and be like, Ooh, sorry, we owe you, you know, 120 grand. And they're still bragging about us how much they love us and they believe in us. And then um, we actually are selling three buildings to answer your question that we're selling three buildings that'll put us back at clean slate and then everything after this will be all ours. That's awesome. That's great. Respect that, man. That's yeah. That's a harrowing story, but that's cool. So something that every investor out there should know and and take the responsibility for. You know, like if you if you fuck up, then make it right. Don't <laughs> walk away from it. Losing I, money is a real thing in real estate, despite what some people may believe. Yeah, yeah, leverage is an amazing thing, but it cuts both ways. It definitely yeah. does. So yeah, it's not like it HGTV is. where you just you're always making money, right? <laughs> Everything's great. We came three hundred and sixty-seven dollars under budget. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say whatever they want. <laughs> whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Our our team of forty contractors were able to bust out this renovation in thirty-six hours. For the record, I will sell out. <laughs> <laughs> I second that motion. I will sell out with you. <laughs> There's like a truism, right? In real estate that what it's, what's more important aren't the deals that you swing at. It's the deals that you decide to pass on. That's how you can really avoid big problems. So what sort of did you guys learn from the experience where you're walking a building or you're looking at something and and, and a red flag goes up and you uh, say, nah, this one's not for us. I would say the biggest thing we've learned and we've actually cheated on a couple of times, which thankfully didn't really hurt us. but where we've gotten, especially where we've gotten to now, we won't touch anything that's not a full gut renovation in Boston. 
And I, I honestly just attribute most of it to a couple things, age of buildings. And then in a lot of the markets we tend to work in uh, long time uh, neglect, uh, seemingly by landlord or, or possible owner, but a long time neglect on the buildings and just the age and the code that you have to bring them to now. Obviously, it's a slippery slope. And as I said before, it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a volcano sometimes. And you said that in Boston in particular, you don't like partial renovations. Um, why is that? The biggest thing, it, the age of the buildings and long-time neglect seems to be the biggest, the biggest thing that we come across in these, these really old and battered buildings. And it's just really challenging to bring them to today's building code, uh, doing some sort of partial renovation or trying to save money in one area when in the long run, you're really just going to make it harder on yourself. So and you're talking about condo development specifically though. Yeah. Th- this is most applicable to condo developments. Our rental properties are just, they're different types of properties. So it's almost like two different questions, but yeah, for condo developments, if you're looking to buy and flip and sell something in Boston, which most commonly is the condo conversion and a, gut renovation or new construction is just the only way to go. It's hard to make numbers work from a rental perspective in the city if you have to gut the new building. It just doesn't it work. It totally is. And, and that's kind of back to, it, it's just back to how we model our business, which is borrowing 100% of whether it be from a combination of a hard money lender or a bank, and then a second position private investor. So with that business model, the ability to put a bunch of money of our own into a project let it sit in there for a while. It can kind of put you into different types of projects. So just the way our, our model runs, it forces us into those models, which is of, of gut renovations. And that's just the best way to do it from my seat anyway. Yeah. And I wonder if even for us, like from the long-term rental, yeah, maybe we'll, we will transition into that. You know, you look at the Avalons of the world that have these 200 unit developments and they're all new construction, awesome territory areas. And they've just got a ton of cash on hand and they're leveraging really, really super cheap capital to do their developments. And for them, it's a, it's a lower you know, return on investment, but maybe it's more peace of mind because of the quality of the building that they've provided to the market. And just in our age and where we're at right now as entrepreneurs and business owners, we don't have that luxury. We need to take the annoying phone calls. We need to, you know take the hits on the chin and really cut our teeth on that side of the business. I'm sure they did as well when they were getting started. So we'll see how that changes and naturally progresses. You know, one thing I've learned is even any, even any apartment building that you think might be like mostly stabilized, maybe it just needs better management and better rents, always budget, you know, at least like 10 to 15 grand per unit to take care of that full plumbing remodel if needed, that full heating remodel if needed. And then make sure you've got those cash reserves built in to the loan on the side. And and yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. You know, you got to pay to play, right? And in, in terms of paying, it means like you got to do the grunt work and and help to clean out and go, go to the property and take those calls at, you know, 11 o'clock at night when something is going wrong because it it helps you learn and plan and improve your processes and put systems in place later on that will allow you to build. Exactly. Yeah. 
I think I think that one day you can be what's what's called a uh, a gentleman uh, developer, but until that day, you have to take the phone calls and do the work. But uh, there's, yeah, there's margin to just sit back and hire everything out and have a GC, have a property manager, have a you have to wear a lot of hats. You do for sure. It's um, I like that term. The e I heard that in a previous episode. The gentleman developer, and I knew that was like. That was what I wanted to be when I started. And I realized you can't just become that. You have to work <laughs> your way into it. So I figure while we're, I mean, Alex and I are still in our 20s, uh, fingers crossed for a little bit longer. And uh, <laughs> we figure if we're going to work, we're going to work now, we're, I'm just going to work hard. And I know that if I work hard now, that it's going to pay off for the future. And Alex and I, I feel like I've always known that that value sits deep with inside both of us. And um, that matches us really well together for the long term. And amen to that. And I would say that even a lot of the very successful developers that have been around and have been doing grinding and doing this for a long time, they never really become just take Wednesdays off and play golf. They're still pretty in the details and taking every phone call and uh, very active and involved. And I, I, I think you can lose your shirt quickly. And I think that they know that no one cares as much as they do. And so for that reason, you can't just kind of check out and let someone run your projects. For sure. For sure. Oh, we're coming up close to time. Overrated, underrated, appropriately rated. Dan Ren. Let's do it. You guys yeah. know the rules? I do. Okay. Yeah. I haven't listened to like the last 10. So. <laughs> so. Well, we've been, the good news is we've been doing it since episode one. So. I know. <laughs> uh, the question is, do we know our own rules? Because sometimes we don't even ask the questions right. So we better be on our game, you know? Way to come in and save the day and not make me look like a total loser. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, brother. All right, Mark, you uh you brought it up. You got a first one there, or are you still thinking? Buying permitted deals. Appropriately rated if you know what you're looking at. Tell me more. I think it's a part of the supply chain of business. I actually prepared for this answer. I prepared this answer <laughs> <laughs> in my head. It sounds like you prepared. I like it. But it makes sense, right? So people look at permitted deals and they may think, you know, depending on which lens you're looking at it through and where they're at in terms of their who they are as a developer, they may see dollar signs um, and another person may see that it's way overpriced. But I think that a, in a responsible business transaction, each person can leave money on the table for the next person. I mean, that's how, that's literally how products are made and developed. Every person leaves the money on the table for the next person in the supply chain. So if you have a responsible seller and a responsible buyer, and you have an educated seller and an educated buyer, and you have brokers that can help facilitate that as well, then you can end with a really good transaction and the person selling can make their profits and move on. They've taken their risk for however long they've owned the property. Um, they're entitled to whatever money that they've made by buying a property and permitting it and then reselling it. I don't, it doesn't matter to me how they got there. What then matters to me is where I'm at, how much it's going to cost me to do it, and if I'm confident in my underwriting. And if I'm confident in my underwriting and also confident in the design team, a, a, really, big as, good at, a really big aspect of that as well. Um, having a, a good design team in place and, and doing your vetting on them, which is should be part of your underwriting, uh, then it can be truly a win-win for everybody. Nice. Great answer. Nice. I don't want to follow that up. 
Yeah. All right, I got one. Did I, ex- uh, did I explain that? <laughs> There's that a lot was, of words. That was perfect. Okay, yeah. good. I zoned out. Okay, I'll try. I'll try and I did too. <laughs> like the end of Billy Madison at the trivia. Yeah. Blacked out. <laughs> Black, <blacked> out. <laughs> All right, Ray, you're up. Uh, the uh, Home Depot bid room. Don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> underrated. So underrated. Under, under, it's underrated. Over, it's underrated. Oh, I. I mean. It's underrated if it's being done automatically for you. I have apparently saved some money in the Home Depot bedroom, and I didn't know. Oh, nice. So underrated in that aspect. I can't um, imagine. Let's trying to work with Home Depot on anything is incredibly overrated. Can I suggest a better, can I suggest a better idea than the bedroom? Befriend somebody who works in the Home Depot, and they will inform you of things that are going to be Mark down to crazy, stupid prices before they just throw them out. For example, I just purchased 45 cases of tile, which are going to outfit an entire six-unit building in Brockton, and I spent $65 what? for all five cases. So that is better than the bedroom. Just make yourself a friend and treat them well. Sean, thank you. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell his name. Great advice. <laughs> yeah. New Hampshire. Joe no say. So. Huh? Yeah, I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I haven't, we haven't underwritten anything in New Hampshire, actually. We haven't. It's probably underrated. Probably. I don't know. It's probably. Everything's right, well, what underrated. about Rhode Island? Harrison? Rhode Island, definitely. Right, I have, we haven't really underwritten anything here either. Hard seltzers. Also underrated. <laughs> Appropriately rated. Way underrated. Wonderful. Delicious. Way Nectar underrated. of the angels. Scented candles. I'm just Herbal oh. <laughs> <laughs> tea. All right, let's Taylor Swift. Okay. <laughs> Back to real estate. Ray, put us on track. Putting you on track. All right. Uh, I gotta do the white shaker counter. Uh, don't stuff. you prepare for these podcasts? All right. We don't really prepare for them. Design questions, I'm, I, I'll give you my hard opinion on. Oh, really? Okay. 30-inch sinks. Appropriately rated. Drawer microwaves. It's too small. Drawer microwaves. Overrated. As opposed to? I couldn't help it. Like over the range or on the counter? No, as opposed to built-in microwave, like where you push the button and the door opens, like we've had in our house forever. I love them. I would I would totally put one in my house. It, it's appropriately rated, rated depending on your usage of it. It's hard to say. I'll do a drawer microwave in a project, and then I'll turn around and then I'll do a, a countertop microwave in a project, and I, I'll feel great about both decisions, depending on the project. Mark, that was like a very, yeah. that was like a Mark's political. Head Mark, <laughs> no, it's a true answer though. Mark doesn't right. like that answer. It's <laughs> all right. I stumped him. I'm out of it. I think this has been a great episode. I think that we, uh, we're coming up on time and we appreciate everyone listening and Alex and Harrison, you guys for joining us and being so candid, um, sharing your story. I'm sorry if I was disruptive. It's okay. Yeah, we're, look, we're, looking forward to, we're looking forward to getting together after COVID. Disruptive is a mark of a good interviewer. Well, we're looking forward to getting together as well. And thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. We know nobody can really see, but Alex has been rubbing his head the whole time, and he's got like six different hairdos as 
we've been going through this uh, Zoom call here. So maybe we'll have- figure out how to publish these things on YouTube or something. I didn't wash it in approximately two days. So I have that good natural oil in the hair that's just letting it fly up. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. yeah, There we go. Cool. Hey, if anybody wants to uh, find you guys, connect, you know, if they've got some property that fits your criteria, how do they reach you? Sure. Harrison, do the, do the Instagram plug. We love Instagram at Wollaston, R-E-I, W-O-L-L-A-S-T-O-N-R-E-I. It's amazing how many locals have no idea where Wollaston is. That's true. You can feel free to... Oh, also, please check us out on YouTube. You can go to Wollaston Realty Bros on YouTube, or you can just Google Wollaston Wednesday. And at this point, we've put enough of those out there that we should show up at the top. And then always invite people to reach out You know, for coffee or calls. It's alex at wollastonrei.com and it's harrison at wollastonrei.com. Awesome. Do awesome. you want to share your home address or anything else? Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, gladly. Public uh, <laughs> Just kidding. Public record. <laughs> Thanks everybody here. for listening. Uh, it's a wrap. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> 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 <laughs>